0: Thanks for everything else. All right. Here we go. Welcome, welcome. Okay. Last Sunday, Easter. If you did not see it, please do. It was an amazing look at the most amazing passage, or one of the most amazing passages in all the Bible, Isaiah 53. And and what we noted was, was that this is a prophetic passage that has a detail in it which runs towards, all, which is more like an eyewitness account of something than it would be like a horoscope or some vague Nostradamus-type prophecy or something. This was an incredibly detailed telling of what would happen in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then what we did is that we said not only that, but all the meaning was in there too, Right? Everything that this meant, in fact what we noted was, is that just in a few chapters in Isaiah 53, the whole chapter itself, but just in a few verses, excuse me, in that chapter, the whole of the Gospels can be found. I mean, what it's about, the fall of mankind, the the way that God himself is the one who's going to redeem us, how he's going to do it, why he's going to do it, the whole nine yards. So it's just incredible, not just the detail, but the meaning. And then we noted something else, which is, if you take Jesus out of human history, and try and find a time where those words can be fulfilled? There isn't one. These words are only fulfilled in Jesus. There's no other person, there's no other time, there's no other place that these could possibly have been fulfilled. And in Jesus, they are not just fulfilled, they are fulfilled to the nth degree. They are fulfilled absolutely completely, right? We noted that God said about that, that I'm doing a new thing. I'm going to tell you about what is going to happen in a new way. And clearly, that's exactly what he did in those chapters and in that passage in particular. So here's my question for today. How many of you would like to give a prophecy like that? How many of you? Just raise your hands. How many of you would like to give a prophecy like that? You know, just incredible detail and the whole thing. Would you raise your hands and just hold them up there for a second? I want you to see something. Now, that's quite a few hands, and I want to say amen. Praise God, this is an awesome congregation. But I do want to note something. There's quite a few hands that didn't go up, <laughs> Right? Now, some of that would be because there'd be people in here that don't really, you know, know the Lord yet, and so that's all a little bit. And, and again, I would say, really look at that sermon from last week, because people ask that there's a, God would prove himself, and I want to say, this is one of those times when he actually does, okay, in this passage. It's very difficult to understand that passage, absent Jesus, and when you understand it as Jesus, you know, it's just very difficult to not understand that God is saying, you can trust me in this. In fact, that's what he says. He says, I do this so that you can know that I really am i really am in control i really am who i say i am i really do do what i say i do see what i mean so so bottom line is we look at that and we say well somebody who doesn't know god all right they might not raise their hands but how many people in here that did know god do believe that he prophesies do believe he still prophesies today and know that it's helpful and so on how many people in here know all of that and still didn't raise your hands right now why didn't you raise your hands? Well, there's a hundred different reasons for it. We can go to really simple ones like this. Frankly, you know, prophets are kind of weird, you know? Now, can I say it? We get a good laugh out of that, but that's untrue. That's what we've made it out to be. I'm not saying that God might not ask you to do something someday that's pretty strange, okay? But that happens a handful of times in the Bible. Most of the time you have somebody like Jesus who's doing it in a very natural and real way. A very attractional way, not a way that's off-putting whatsoever, in a way that's quite helpful, in a way that's quite insightful. That's what it ought to look like. Okay. We can also look at, you know, what if I get it wrong? You know, am I going to embarrass myself? Here's a here's a couple of prophecies that have been given, and and I, I think that this shows us one of the ways of not prophesying, because here here would be one that people would be afraid of doing. Yea, I am the omniscient God, saith the Lord, and so far as I know. Let it sink in for a second. It'll hit you. Okay. All right. Or how about this one? How about this one? Thus saith the Lord, I am not in this place. Okay. All right. This is a personal favorite of mine. And even as Moses built the ark, saith the Lord. So, uh, yeah, I'm wrong, saith the Lord. I meant Noah. And even as Noah built the ark. (laughs) This is an actual recorded prophecy. That's awesome, right? There's another one that goes, you know, I write Michelob above your door. Uh, Okay. So, you know, I, you, we get it, right? You know, we get it that we may do something. We're just afraid of being embarrassed. Honestly, one of the biggest reasons, in fact, if, it's probably most likely the biggest reason that people don't want to prophesy is because they're afraid of being embarrassed. They're afraid of doing something. And I want to say a little something here. The thought is a lot on themselves, right? It's about, I'm going to say something stupid and it's not going to be true. And, you know, you could go to the charitable place, which is to say, what if you prophesied something that wasn't actually God and it misled somebody? Right? Like, that would be a big problem. That would be a problem worth worrying about. Okay? The one about you being embarrassed, I don't know, let's just put it this way, you're amongst friends. Okay? Maybe you're not because it's somebody else, but the bottom line is, is you know, take all of the reasons that we have for not prophesying. Because, like I say, there's tons of them, right? Take all those reasons and stack them up over here, and what you have to do is that you have to put against them this particular scripture, which says, Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy this is the holy spirit through paul saying desire earnestly what is that saying desire kinda well you know if you're a prophet then you know you can want to do this by the way let me say one quick sidebar on prophecy of all of the gifts There's the Father's gifts, there's the Son's gifts, and there's those momentary gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Fathers and the Sons are residing. We've talked about that already. Go back a couple of weeks and you can hear that sermon if you want to understand that. But the bottom line is, prophecy is in the Father's gifts as a residing mantle. Prophecy is one of the offices that Christ gives to the church. And prophecy is the kind of thing that can come from anybody at any time in the situation, distributed as the Spirit wills, okay? But the bottom line is, is that what he's saying is, he's not just saying, you know, kind of want to prophesy or kind of hope that maybe God might take my tongue and move it precisely so that I say every single thing perfectly. That's not how it works, right? What he's saying is, earnestly desire. What does that mean? Well, it means earnestly desire. <laughs> do we do that? Do we earnestly desire to speak his word? Do we? In fact, Just to make it clear, see, who's he telling to do that? The brethren. He's not saying the prophets should earnestly desire to prophesy. He's saying everybody, everybody should earnestly desire to do what? Let's make it clear. Earnestly desire to speak the things of God into the situation when you're faced with a situation, a friend, somebody that you love, somebody that you care about, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, somebody like this, you know, isn't there something in you that, boy, I mean, if you could say something that would be, you know, the Lord is the one who says something like, let there be light, and guess what happens? There's light. He speaks into the situation, and something changes, right? Wouldn't it be important cool wonderful isn't it a desire of ours to speak into the situation the thing of God that makes a difference a real thing not just to be a a shoulder a comforting shoulder that is wonderful but don't you know don't you In fact let me do it this way I'm gonna take deep I'm gonna make less intimidating the question now how many people in this room you know, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, somebody that you met and you care about them and something, God starts to move on you and do something. How many of you would like to be his instrument to speak into their lives in a way that makes a difference? How many of you want to do that? Raise your hands. I hope everybody, in fact, if you don't even know the Lord, still, right? You know what I mean? If it makes a difference, what the heck? Who cares? See it? I'm glad that every hand went up, or basically every hand went up, and I'm glad for that because that's where we're going today. We're going to learn about this prophecy thing. Remember, we've kind of switched from, from going after a desire to do the things into actually how to do them, and we're going to look at that today. So that's where we're headed. This is an awesome person to pray for this. This is Roger Miller. He's got a cool thing coming up here in July. It's a really cool ministry stuff and everything else. But Roger, thank you for praying for the sermon. Thank you for praying for another church, too.
1: Gracious Heavenly Father, we've already felt your presence here this morning through the worship time and oh, amen. the laying on hands of to Jesse. Father, you are here. We know you're here. We felt you here. And, Father, now I just ask your continued touch upon Kurt this morning as he brings us deeper into making us better Christians, Father. Thank you. Jesus. We just want to get closer and closer and closer And we see that in this body, that you are drawing us all closer to you, and we're seeing the fruits of that, Father. Amen. So now, again, give him a special touch this morning, a special anointing. Let your words be heard throughout this congregation. And I lift up all the, the chapels on military bases this morning. Be with those chaplains. Guide and direct them as they minister to troops who are sometimes in harm's way and sometimes aren't. But Father, be with them. In
0: Jesus' name I
1: pray. Amen. Amen.
0: That was awesome, Roger. Thank you. What we're going to do today is that we're going to contrast two particular prophecies. Okay? The Isaiah one, and then the one that's in our chapter. We're in Luke, and we're still in chapter 1, and we're looking at Zechariah's prophecy about, and I'll explain that in a second. But what I want to do is I want to contrast these two um, prophecies. And the, fir- the way that I want to start is this. I want us to look at Isaiah 53 again. Many of you read it last week, so just enjoy it for a second. Many of you didn't. And what I really want you to do is when you're listening to this, don't just listen for the content, the information, the facts, but listen for the heart, the spirit, the tone of the prophecy. And what I want you to be asking, by the way, Jimmy Ferraro is one of our missionaries, and she's here today. And I just saw her, and she's so cool. And she is awesome, and so you guys got to say hi to her, you know what I mean, just love on her, and the whole nine yards, it's just very cool, okay, sorry, but I just, finally it connected to my slow brain here, okay, so bottom line is, I want you to be, I want you to listen to this prophecy, and I want you to see, does this fit the tone of Jesus on earth as we know him in the gospels, see what I'm saying? Is the tonal quality of this prophecy, the spirit of it, the heart of it, does it fit Christ? Okay, and I've already suggested that it does, but I just want you to feel it, not just think about it intellectually. Okay, all right. So, oh, welcome to our Empowered series. Sorry. Uh, This is, this is, what we're doing with this thing is, sorry, I missed a whole point here. Okay, this is the Holy Spirit coming upon, that's what that's illustrating, and do remember something. The Holy Spirit comes upon... And it would be great if what he would do is take control of our tongue so that whatever he did through us was purely him and nothing but him. Wouldn't that be great? That's just not what he does. Instead, what he does, he comes upon, it goes inside, and to some degree, it mixes up with what is us inside, and what comes out is an admixture of both him and us. Okay? I want you to see this today. So again, I want you to show you a prophecy where that didn't happen or at least the the conduit was pure, and it goes like this, okay? Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? He's saying, listen up, consider these words. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful and majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people he had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone but he was buried like a criminal but he was put in a rich man's grave but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in His hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by His anguish, the Father God will be satisfied, and because of Jesus' experience, my righteous servants will make it possible. My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for Jesus will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels, but what he was doing was he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. You see that? Now you see when you read that, that's the Jesus that we know from the Gospels, the ones that we preach every week, right? Now when we do that, when we see that, I want us to understand the vessel through whom the prophecy came. The guy's name is Isaiah. Now, here's the thing that's funny about Isaiah. There's almost not another character like him in the Bible besides Jesus. Nothing bad is ever said about what Isaiah does. Think about it. You've got towering figures that are great examples of faith. Abraham, Moses, David. In those three, there's two murders and an adulterer and several other kinds of problems, Right? Let's be real, okay? You even get Samuel. Here's a prophet we know quite a lot about. You get to Samuel, and here's a prophet who also had times when God had to say, get out of my face, stop it. You're interceding for Saul, and I have rejected him. I've chosen David. Move on. (laughs) So it's like Saul. Now we can say Saul, that's a good thing that he was holding on to Saul, right? And wanting to see him succeed. That's a good heart, right? The problem is, it's no different than going his own way, though. It's not where God was. It's not what God was doing with him. Do you see it? So we we know most of the prophets we don't know much about. Isaiah we know a lot about. And what we see in Isaiah's case is there's never a moment like that in his life. All the time what he does is respond. God tells him to do something, he does it. God tells him to do something that's quite dangerous, he doesn't argue, he does it. See what I mean? Isaiah is clearly a guy who's just doing what God says and he just does it. So, all right, that ought to speak something about it. In fact, I want to go a little bit deeper, and I want to say there was even something that God did to him to make him a more pure vessel. Or or let me put it this way. When I say pure, that's not the right word. Emptied vessel. Because certainly Isaiah had sin. We're going to see it in a second. The point is, though, is that when God was moving, I must decrease, he must increase. We have to empty ourselves that God might fill us. This is what Isaiah did beautifully, wonderfully. And in fact, God helped it to happen by this. Something that, by the way, has happened to all of us too, if you think about it because of that flame coming down. But watch this. I saw the Lord. This is Isaiah. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim. Now look at that. Mighty seraphim, mighty angels each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is full with his glory. Now, I picture what it is. With two, they were keeping themselves afloat, so to speak. And then with two of the wings, they were going like this, as if God is so holy that they could not look upon him. And with the other two, they are covering themselves like this, as if to cover themselves from his holiness. You see that? So what they're doing is they're in his presence, right in his presence. And he's so holy that even these mighty seraphim, these angels that are surrounding him, they are covering themselves. Now, with that in mind, Isaiah does what all of us would do. Because what happens is their voices shook the temple to its foundations. The entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, I'm done. (laughs) That's it. It's over. I'm doomed. I'm a sinful man. This is what happens. It's, it's amazing in Scripture every time that God gets in the presence of somebody, somebody sees His presence or comes into the presence of His glory. What happens in them is it's like all the sin that's in us is this combustible material that ignites and we go, I am toast. <laughs> See, the sin ignites when we get around His holiness. Even if we don't think we're sinners, when we get around Him, we go, oops, <laughs> I am doomed right? Now look what he says, and I love this. This is the thing I say before every time I preach. We pray back there, and I say this every time, and it's not because of some formula. It's because I believe this, and I want to confess this. I have filthy lips, and I live amongst a people with filthy lips. I need, there's no chance that I'm not going to admix. There's no chance that God's going to come through me purely. There's no chance. I'm not a good vessel. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That's us, right? Now, I do want to note that he says, yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Let me paraphrase that for you so you get what that means. I just saw God, and I'm not dead. (laughs) What's going on? (laughs) What's what's happening, (laughs) right? I feel it. I feel like I want to die. I feel like I'm doomed, and yet I'm not dying. What's going on? Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. Think about the fire comes upon, the Holy Spirit coming upon. Think about Jesus' blood cleansing us. A burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, I'm a man of lips. He touched that thing in me that was going to impede the flow of the Lord. He touched my lips and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sin is forgiven. And what that means is you've been cleansed of that which would impede the flow of God through you. See that? I've got a little illustration here. And you can pray that this goes well and and that, okay, all right, right? Just pray a lot right now, okay? All right. So. So here's what I want to show you. See, we talk about the Holy Spirit coming down as rain and so on. The Holy Spirit's coming down, right? And then what we want to do is we want to be a good conduit of what's coming down. And so in other words, the flow of God ought to look like this. See that? See See how it's clean and pure? See that? Now that would be somebody who was prophesying properly. The things of the Lord were able to go through them without impediment. See that? Now here's the problem. We're all a little nuts. That's a nut, okay? See, we're all, we all got this issue in us. We all got these problems in us. And so what we do is, is this is what's actually inside of us, okay? And so now when the Lord is trying to flow through us, when it comes in us and it's trying to come back out again, it looks a little bit more like this. Now you see how different that looks? I want you to note God's still being able to flow through but it's just coming out differently than what it was coming in. You see that? It's being corrupted. It's being made to look different than what it's intended to be. You see it? Okay, does that, does that work for you as a metaphor? I think I've really stopped it up or it's still coming. I think I'm in trouble here. Okay, good. All right. Now, I hope that stupid little illustration puts something memorable in your mind. And that is my goal is That what comes in ought to come out exactly as it went in, or as close as possible, right? I want the flow, the things of God to come through a vessel that's been emptied so that it doesn't get twisted and turned a little bit. That's what we're shooting for, right? Now, that's what I want to propose to Isaiah was, a guy who, in the whole of his life, what we saw is whatever God wanted him to do, he just did it. He didn't argue with him. He didn't say, what about this? What about that? He didn't do all these self things. He seemed to be incredibly selfless. And so he was this excellent conduit for things like Isaiah 53. Now note something. As much as he was a good conduit, there was another aspect to him. He did earnestly desire to prophesy. I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. See, that's Isaiah. Not just being a good vessel emptied but being a willing vessel earnestly desiring Do you see it so we got an excellent example of what prophecy supposed to look like by the way jesus would be another pretty good one right right an emptied vessel i only do what i see the father doing i only say what i hear him saying my will not my will but yours be done see that so we got that same exact kind of a thing in Jesus. Now I want to contrast Isaiah and Jesus, great examples of how to truly prophesy well, with Zechariah now. Because who is Zechariah? Zechariah is this guy who's a priest, getting on in years, in the temple ministering. Angel shows up, says, even though you're well past the normal child childbearing years, you're going to have a son. Something that you've longed for. Wow, this is incredible. Just praise God. That's what he does, right? No, actually, he doesn't. He says, how can this be? Okay? Right? He questions it. He doubts it. The angel says, because you doubt it, I'm going to shut up your mouth. I think that that's actually, I want us to think in the terms of what we're doing right now. Because he wanted to, because he had his own thing going on, God stopped him in this very thing that we're talking about today. See that? So he stops him up. Now what happens is, is that he goes on and, and, you know, he doesn't talk until it's time for the baby to be born. The baby's born. They want to name it the way that they would normally name it according to family members and so on. The mom says, no, it's John. That's what the angel had told him to do. John means graciousness of God. Graciousness of God meaning to those parents because they were old and they had a child. But even more deeply, what is John supposed to do? Usher in Jesus, who is grace himself. Grace incarnate. God's graciousness extended to all mankind. See that? So so this is an important thing. This name is important. And what happens is is that as soon as they say, say so so Zechariah, who should we name him and he goes John. Now as soon as he writes down the name John, then what happens is instantly Zechariah could speak again and he began praising God. All fell on the whole neighborhood. The news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on the events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Got it? Okay. And then, and I want to argue that he was praising God, and at that very moment, that the report went out over time, but that right now, Zacharias has a prophecy. And I want you to note something about this prophecy here. And I'm not coming against this whatsoever. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So, how does he prophesy here? Is he making it up himself? No. Okay? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's now speaking the word of the Lord. Okay? So, that's clear, right? Has everybody got that? We're clear on this? That really is God who is speaking through him? Okay? But, I want you to consider something. We're going to listen to this prophecy here in just a second, just like we did Isaiah's. And when we listen to it, I want you to discern, does this sound like the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus that came? Or does it sound like something else? It's not to say it's not true. Let Let me show you what I'm saying. The Jews of the day are thinking of Messiah to come, the deliverance of God to come. They're thinking of Messiah as a conquering king. The Jews in the day that Jesus is born are being oppressed by the Romans, and the Romans are an iron-fisted, brutal power. The Romans, almost of all empires, were the ones that understood what raw force means, how to exercise it in a way to keep people under their umbrella. So they are hated but you can't outwardly hate them because you'll end up on a cross or some other bad thing, right? So the point is these guys, the, the, the Jews live in a internal hatred of these Romans. They are feeling the oppression of them. They cannot worship the way they want. They cannot run their own country. They have to approve of things like trying to kill Jesus. They have to do all of these things and they hate all of that restriction. And what they think of the Messiah to come as being, because there's all kinds of prophecies about this. When the Messiah comes, he will be a conquering king who will deliver people from the people that oppress them. That is very much true. And we as Christians know that that's true too because we hear when Jesus comes again the second time, He does not come as he came the first time as suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He comes to fulfill the other half of those prophecies that are about the fact that he is actually the creator of the world and he's going to take it back. (laughs) He is going to be the conquering king over all that would resist him. See? So that conquering king stuff is absolutely true. It's absolutely scriptural. It's absolutely prophetic. This is all real and true. Right? But I just want you to process when you're listening to this is this prophecy that zachariah says faithful to what jesus was actually doing like isaiah's was and when i say this i know that when i start questioning prophecy there's people in here that are going to go boy you're on a slippery slope can i tell you i know i'm on a slippery slope right now i'm going to say something about something that's clearly said to be prophesied by the holy spirit i'm going to ask you to consider it a new light and I think when I get done, I think I'll go, oh, man, that probably is there. But let me tell you something. I believe in the authority of Scripture. I believe that it is an anointed. I believe it is inspired. I believe the Scripture is God-breathed. I believe it is the thing in the world that is, as it says, all in Scripture is inspired, God-breathed by God, and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is, right, wrong, and what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Now, listen to it. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, I think when we read that, we think of it in very simplistic, dark, and light terms. I think we need to understand that Scripture is an incredibly subtle book, too. It is incredibly nuanced. I am not undermining the authority of Scripture to correct me and teach me when I use it to correct and teach me, even if the point may be more subtle again, let me show you what that means. Okay, so we're reading this prophecy now. And I want you to just not just hear the facts, ma'am. I want you to hear the spirit, the tone. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches, a repeat there, to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness, in his presence all our days. And child, now notice right here, verse 76, he's switching over to the prophecy about his son and i want to say in this son prophecy i think he nails this his son perfectly and child you will be called a prophet of the most high you will go before the lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of our god's merciful compassion the dawn from on high will visit us that means the early morning light right the new day is coming that's what that means to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Now look at this. To shine on those who will live in darkness and the shadow of death. See, when we say that, that the Messiah is to deliver us from our oppressors, there's two things that that means. We see all kinds of times when that means to deliver us from those who are opposed to God, right? Jesus coming as king and overcoming in a very kingly Obvious way. But we also understand that when he's talking about deliverance from our oppressors, what's the biggest oppressor of all? Sin and death. Sin and death. These are oppressing us. <laughs> we are hopelessly trapped in sin and we are relegated to death. And Jesus comes and overcomes those two things. See that? So he's so the, the first coming of Jesus delivers us in the more nuanced, subtle, deep way of the spirit. And it's awesome. And clearly, he's saying that right there. See, to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace, reconciliation with God. See? So I think he gets the son part, the, his son, John the Baptist, perfectly. But when we get to the, when we're in the Jesus part, can I just call your attention to two particular places? Salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. We have been rescued from our enemies' clutches to serve him without fear. Here's what I think Zachariah is thinking. My son is going to usher in the conquering king that's going to deliver us from the Romans so that they're no longer oppressing us and we're now over them. Do you see that? It seems to be pretty clearly what's in his mind, right? Now, it is true, conquering king. There's nothing in here that isn't true factually. But I want to say... In Isaiah, we saw the suffering servant of Jesus' first coming described beautifully and perfectly. In this one, here's what the big problem is, guys. You test prophecy by whether or not it comes true. That's how you test it. Ultimately, that is the test. Does it come true? Because, you know, if it's God, it will. Because God makes it come true, as he said, right? But here's the problem that we've got right here. The Jews are not delivered from the Romans. Still haven't been to this day. In fact, not just not delivered from the Romans. You do understand that they were completely wiped out by the Romans during the generation that Zechariah prophesied into. About 33 AD, Jesus dies on the cross. God gives the Jewish nation almost another generation, just short of a generation, 40 years. Okay? So 33 AD, in 70 AD, the nation of Israel ceases to be. Because the Romans come and put a siege against, you heard of Masada and so on, that happens a little bit later in the 70s, that's when it's finally fully over. But really, the nation of Israel ends when the Roman army surrounds the city of Jerusalem and lays siege to it during the Passover, where the city has swelled to 1.1 million people. And by the time that siege is over, there's only 90,000 people that are still alive. So Zechariah is prophesying. That my son is going to bring us the person who's going to deliver us from the enemy, and the truth of what happens is the enemy completely overcomes them. See it? So again, I want to say the Holy Spirit did not say something that was false. Jesus does come as conquering king, and Zechariah said that. But I just want to say that if you'll look carefully at what's happening here, we've got an instance where it's a little bit like, let's get to the subtlety of the word and what it's trying to teach us. Zechariah, unlike Isaiah, unlike Jesus, Zechariah is a guy who's already demonstrated a willfulness on his own part, right? An orientation to do things his way. And I want to argue with you that what's happened is the Holy Spirit has come upon and has come in and Zechariah has filtered it so that it comes out sounding a certain way that isn't actually, okay? I can't say it's not true because it is true but it's misleading it's not prophetic in a sense you see it now you're gonna say wow kurt i don't know what you're doing right here and you know we may kick you out of here for right now so let me just take you to another place in scripture where this happens that is you can't argue it okay you can argue my interpretation of it but you can't argue the basic problem which is sometimes people get it wrong thinking that they're getting it right okay here's what we got we got Paul here going on a missionary journey. This is his third missionary journey. Okay, You see the blue lines? You see those? I don't know how to get this one to... Is there a red line? Apparently nobody can see my red line. Anyway, can you see that dot? You see the blue here? Here's Paul going on a journey. You see him going up to here and going up to here? He comes all the way down to here. Now that's Corinth. You can't even see the word there, but that's Corinth, okay? Now right here, this is a major, major trade route, okay? That's a safe place to, to sail a ship. See, instead of around here where there's all kinds of winds and stuff. You go across here, and then and there's a little land portage right there. So you park your ship here, you land portage over to there, then you go through that passage. And then right over here, this is the Italy boot. And so then you come to the, to the bottom of the boot, and you unload, and then there's this Roman highway, right? The Roman highway that goes up to Rome, okay? And so the natural progression of what Paul's doing, this would be the land route for it, and it would be to go over here and then head up to Rome. And in fact, Paul, in Corinth, I want to argue. This is the part that you could argue with me on it. I may be wrong. I may be right. I don't, it's not important. Okay? But, but Paul, in Corinth, is feeling this terrible urge to go to Rome. And he even writes him. And he says, man, I really want to come to Rome. I do have one thing I have to do first, though. I want to, I want to argue that's his mistake, and we'll see why in a second. But do you, do you get it? He's saying, I really do want to come to Rome. I feel this burden to come to Rome. But he says, but I really want to, first, I've been taking this collection up and I want to bring it to, back to Jerusalem. And I want to say something. Here's what I think Paul has in his mind. This is speculation. But I think Paul has in his mind, you know, the, the difference between Jews and Gentiles, the, the division between them, the conflict between them. There's all these Jewish people in there. Every, I think he's collecting money from Gentiles with an idea that he's going to bring it back to Jerusalem where the Christians have become very, very poor because of the persecution. And I think he wants to bring money from Gentiles to Jewish believers in a way that he believes is going to reconcile the Gentile and the Jew. And be a witness not just for the Jewish Christians, but also for the the Jewish people. This is amazing that Gentiles would be pouring money in to help people like this. See that? I think that's what he's got in his mind. Now, the problem is, is that he cannot just take a ship back from there, which would be the normal way to get back, because people are lying in wait to kill him. So he's literally blocked from going back to Jerusalem. Then what he does is, oh, oops, oops, I want to go back. Help me go back. I I can do it. Guys, I think I got it. Let me see if I get it. Where am I? Forward? Forward? Okay, there you go. Okay, sorry, the button's kind of close to it. I'm learning this new remote. Okay, you see what he does? He has to backtrack. That's the red line. See that? Now, when he gets to Miletus right here, and he has a little meeting with the Ephesian guys, but he has a little meeting there. Now, watch what he says here. Now, watch. And now, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. Now, now look what he's saying. They're saying, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. It's not going to go well. He's saying, what do I care about getting thrown into prison? I've been thrown into prison a whole lot. He takes it as if they're afraid for him because he's going to suffer. He's going, I've suffered a whole bunch in my life. Why worry about me? i got this bigger thing that's going to happen, and if I suffer but it works for good, so what? That's how it always works. See? And so he comes against them, and here's what's important. He says, I'm bound by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, he's saying, is leading me to go to Jerusalem. Right? Got it? Okay. So he hops a ship and he ends up in Tyre. We went ashore, found some local believers and stayed with them a week. And these believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. (laughs) Now, let me just make it clear. Somebody's wrong. Paul's wrong or those guys that prophesied are wrong? Maybe the guys that were prophesying, this is a possible interpretation, maybe, they, maybe God was telling them he was going to be jailed and so out of the goodness of their heart, they added to the word, you shouldn't go. When in fact, God wanted him to. Maybe that's what happened. I actually think that when you look at the fact that God blocked it, when you look at something else, how long had Paul been in missionary work at that point in time? Some of you will remember this from years back. How many years had he been in missionary work right now? 14 years. He goes to Jerusalem, things do not go well. Anything that he might have thought was going to happen didn't happen. And the bottom line is he ends up in prison for how long? Two years. It's my contention. It's my belief. It's my argument. You can disagree with me if you want. It's fine. But it's my argument that what happened was is that Paul, having, having not taken a Sabbath year, a pushing through to do the things that in one instance here, he actually got his own will admixed with the Holy Spirit and he became convinced that it was the Holy Spirit that he should go back and he made a mistake and God Sabbathed him for the two years that he should have taken to get him right again. And then what does he do? This is part of my argument still. What happens next? He gets an all-expense trip paid to where? Rome, where I believe he should have gone in the first place. See, as a prisoner, he gets taken back to Rome. See it? Now again, you can argue with whether or not my interpretation of what happened is true. What you can't argue with is two people by the Spirit were saying things that were contradictory. One was saying, I have to go, and the others were saying, You're being told not to go. So when I say that we can get it wrong, I think I'm right. <laughs> right? And I want to say, isn't that our experience? When we prophesy, haven't you added something to it? A lot of times people will prophesy for somebody and they'll say a word and it's kind of a hard word. And, and, you know, we don't want to give a hard word. So we'll add something to the end about how much God loves them and what great plans he has for them. That may be true and it may not be true. The problem is you're the one that added it. See what I mean? What if God just wanted them to get the full weight of the, word, of the difficult word so they might be more likely to actually repent and change their path and go the way he wanted? What if they were like Zechariah and they just had an understanding and, oh, I'm hearing this word and this is what it means. See it? This is what I'm... Okay? There's something going on here that I want us to get a hold of and, and, and now here's the cool thing. Paul, the same guy that I wanted to argue just got it right, Paul is the one who through the Holy Spirit tells us how to get it right. And here's what he does. He comes to us and he says, look guys, Uh, I want to say that that's what happened with Zechariah too, But, but here's what he does. See, Paul writes a letter into Corinth, and this is a major trade route, I said, right? And here's what a major trade route means. When you're a major city on a major trade route, that means your city is filled with carnality. Why? Because there's a bunch of men on a boat for a long time, and then they land, and what happens when they land? They want women, and they want drink, and they want all kinds of stuff, and they've got all kinds of riches with them. And so it makes that major port city very prosperous but it also makes it very carnal. Paul establishes a church in Corinth, a church which, by the way, he starts off in the first part of the book saying this, I thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Jesus Christ. Through him, God has enriched your church. That's how he talks. Enriched your church in every way. This is not a bad thing. With all of your eloquent words and all your knowledge, this confirms what I told you about Christ is true. What confirms it? That it's not just eloquent words of man's wisdoms that are going on, but it's also a demonstration of of the Spirit, of, of power. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church that is moving in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're moving freely in it. See that? But they're a carnal place. They're in a carnal place. And so I want to argue, as does Paul, through the rest of his book, because we're at verse 7 right now in chapter 1, and literally from the next verse to the end of the book, which is 15 chapters later, Paul does nothing but correct them. (laughs) Just corrects them, corrects them here, corrects them there, corrects them here, corrects them there, and primarily he corrects them in this thing about having to do with tongues and prophecy, this idea that God wants to say things to people. And he corrects and corrects and corrects. And and here's, here's what appears to be happening. Not just appears, this is we can pretty be pretty safe in this interpretation. Here's what's going on. God has given the spiritual gifts for what purpose? To reach other people. To reach other people. So God has given gifts so that when somebody walks in and they don't know God, and all of a sudden you're reading their secret thoughts, (laughs) you're telling them the deepest desires of their heart, what do they do? God is here among you. (laughs) This is awesome. Right, But these Corinthians, being carnal in nature, have started turning these gifts into things that puff them up in pride. In particular, it seems to have a lot to do with tongues because Paul spends a lot of time on, on the misuse of tongues in the Corinthian church in this first book. And here's what appears to be happening. Here's the irony. Here's what tongues are for. They're the ultimate humbling of you. They're to bend your knee. You don't know what to pray for as you ought. You need the Holy Spirit to pray for you. You need the Holy Spirit to bring a revelation so that you can speak the actual word of God and not just what you know. Tongues is this incredible way. We'll talk about it in weeks to come. But tongues is this incredible way of, of humbling yourself so that God can move, of emptying yourself so that God can move more purely, right? Now, what they appear to be doing is saying I'm more special and I'm special because I can speak in tongues. In fact, it's likely that what they're actually doing is I'm so special and you're so special that you and I can speak in tongues together and we understand what each other means. And Paul comes along at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14 and he says, that's nonsense, nobody understands. (laughs) Right? You're just totally messing this up. Again, you're puffing yourself up. You're doing something that is puffing you up, which is the exact opposite of emptying you and it's about you and not the person that he's bringing in and so Paul has to say this to them therefore if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider unbelievers enters won't they say that you're out of your minds let's be more let's be what it actually says don't they say that you're crazy and the clear inference here is is that they're gonna say you're crazy and God is saying and they're right to do so and there's also an inference that they're going to leave you and they're right to do so (laughs) So what he's saying is, is the gift that I gave you to bring them to me, you're exercising in a way that's pushing them away from me. See it? You got this all backwards because you've been filled up yourself and it's coming through you in a perverted and a distorted manner. See it? But here's the beautiful thing. Paul lays out for us how to get it right. And it's the coolest thing because here's how we get it right together let two or three people prophesy and let other people evaluate what's being said you see what that means here's what this does not mean thus saith the Lord and what I say is exactly correct and you need to write it down and everything I said is perfectly true and there's no possibility of me being wrong and you need to just respond to whatever it is I said you see that that's that's clearly what is being argued against right here what's being argued for is is that we're all fallible that we all add stuff to it and that what we need to do is have some humility when we come together and we need to discern whether or not what somebody's doing is the Lord and if it is the Lord, to what degree is it the Lord? Have they added something? Have they subtracted something? Have they interpreted something a certain way? Have they added a nice kind word that really didn't belong there? What have they done? Discern it in community, in family, with people that you love. There's a safety. Not just that, but watch what he says. This is an incredible little scripture here. If someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who's speaking must stop. Have you ever read that and said, what the heck does that mean? I don't quite get why that's in there like that. Let me just make it really clear what that is. If somebody is prophesying and somebody else is sitting there and, and there's, they sort of get a word from the Lord... It's quite possible that what's going on is the first person is not quite getting it exactly right. They've strayed in some fashion. There's something that's going on that isn't quite there. So the Holy Spirit prompts the next person to stop them and pick it up. Do you see it? Here's what that's being said. None of us is perfect, but together we get closer if we will stay humble. If when somebody else says, you know what, I I hear what you're saying, but let me just say, when you said that, the Lord kind of said this to me, and I think maybe that we ought to be moving that direction. See what I mean? And that's the word that you start to give, and then another person says, yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah, that's it. Until, well, until where what happens is this. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak. One after the other. Everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meanings of God's holy people. That craziness, that weirdness, that, that, you know, I don't bear witness with this. That's good, don't bear witness with it. Don't convince yourself that it must just be me. Now, it may be you, so be open to the possibility, right? But stay humble. In other words, let the community, let the family, We had two really awesome prophetic words as far as I was concerned during worship. Now, I'm I'm, I'm saying I thought those were genuinely words from the Lord for this congregation during worship time. If they had been wrong, lovingly, we would have dealt with that because we're amongst friends. Do you remember what it says is earnestly desire? That means try. (laughs) And if you get it wrong, what better place to get it wrong than here so that you can start getting it more right? Right. I want to propose to you a way of praying that we've done in council before. I know Ralph was particularly touched by this when we did it in council, and so were a lot of other people. I've done it in many other settings and so on. I want to just tell you what we do. When we're praying for somebody, like a a sick person or something, and they're really, you know, mortally sick and so on, and we're trying to get the Lord's will on it, here's what we do. We start off by praying, you know, three or four people, and we start off by praying. And what we do is, if you pray in the Spirit, we'll do that silently so as not to distract someone else. It doesn't become this cacophony of, is cacophony or cacophony? I keep pronouncing it wrong. Where's Leslie Vincent? Cacophony? Is that the right one? Okay, I'm sorry. I will mispronounce that from now until the end of time. I just want you to know, okay? Whatever it is, I'll say it the other way, okay? Cacophony, all right. But it's not this, it's not this, see, it's done decently and in order. So what happens is you pray in a way that is decent, that is in order. And then all of a sudden, somebody will just get the smallest little thought, an image of something or just a single word or something. And then they'll start to speak it out. They'll say, you know, I was praying and I just have this word. I I think it really is from the Lord. I don't know. I'm giving it to you guys to discern. See that? The difference between thus saith the Lord and, and the one that goes, I'm offering this out there. Do you think that this is true? And somebody else will go, Man, I was just having that same thought in my head, and I think it means something like this. And then somebody else will say, and that just totally bears witness with what God is doing in me. And you'll see this, it's not being made up. It's very much the Lord directing this prayer. And all of a sudden you'll get to this place of revelation about what you're doing. And then you'll pray for that. I will pray with the spirit and I'll pray with the mind. Right? In the spirit we prayed together, we found him and we went. See? And then what we'll do is, once we get to the end of that, then we'll stop and go back and pray some more and see if there's anything more God wants to say. And we'll do that two or three times, and then that usually will be about it. And And then you're done, and you've prayed. And I've seen people get healed with this. I've seen incredible decisions get made this way. I've seen all kinds of wonderful things be done this way. This is an important thing for us to do. But look at the community of that style. Look at what that's saying. This isn't weirdness. This is us trying our best to find the Lord and being willing to speak being willing to say do that being willing to be used as an instrument of god to do this having said that i want to just give you two quick little videos here and here's what i want you to do watch this this is dave Brunk. he 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 sees the wall fall in russia back when the wall fell and he said god's gonna be there so despite the the danger and the difficulty of it and there were dangers and difficulties of plenty he goes over to minsk Belarus, which w- used to be, it's not formally part of the Soviet Union, but they wanted to make the capital of the Soviet Union, Minsk, at one point in time. So it's very much connected to the Soviet Union. And the bottom line is he goes over there, and, and they start this school and this worship school and so on. And I want you to see right now what he did, and, it's, and I want you to see that it was him that desired to do this, and then God met him. Oh, desire to smuff
2: We first got to Belarus. There were so many opportunities and so many needs, there was anything we could have ministered on. But we noticed that in the evenings, well, it wasn't noticed, Roger and Myrna Eiler began to prophesy about the fatherhood of God. And it was dynamic and a strong presence of God with the word every night, interpreting that presence and the fatherhood of God. And it was having a dynamic impact in, in this atheist country. It was just spectacular. And then they left, after two years they left, and immediately there was a difference in what happened in the evening services without that prophetic word giving understanding to the presence of God. I think it, even the presence of God was getting lower. In other words, I understood it that God was, uh, was saying this and approving it, and without that word, the presence wasn't even as strong. So they were gone, and it was affecting it, so I stood up and I started to prophesy. I'd never prophesied in my life before. But I just started to move in this, and I started to speak about the fatherhood of God. And, and, and the thing that was interesting is, it just got better and better and better. And I actually think I have something of a prophetic gift now that never would have come out before. But I had to just step into it and, tr- and, and do it. Try it, do it.
0: That was such an important word because in that country, you know, the- fathers were all drunks, and the state was an oppressive thing, and that's what dads were. And this idea of prophesying into people that there was a father that loved them, that was a game changer in people's hearts. And like I said, you know what Dave says, he says, you know, it started to, it went away when that word wasn't there, and I felt like God was going away. So I stood up, and, and I just let God speak through me that same truth, and it started coming on me. See, I was the one that was willing. Who will I send, says the Lord? What does Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. Now, that was years ago. Now, Dave just got back from a trip to Australia, just like Justine just did. But Dave gets back from a trip to Australia. And notice, these are not church people he's talking about. These are business people that have a meeting where they go around and there's three or four people gathered. And what they do is they prophesy about their businesses to one another. They prophesy about what God wants to do. And it's a personal thing, but it's also a business thing. This is how they run their businesses. They seek the Lord. Now, now listen to this one.
2: So we just returned from Austria, a fantastic trip. And one of the interesting things that happened when we were there is I was invited to attend something called boardroom prophets, and it's with uh, CEOs of, of, of major businesses and, and just guys in, in upper-level management and that. I don't know why I was there, but anyway, one of the things that they do is they they talk about their businesses and that, and you break into groups of three, and you're supposed to prophesy to each other, and and and. I haven't really exercised anything prophetically in years, and my brain isn't anywhere near that. And suddenly, it's my turn to prophesy, and it's like, uh, but you had to, you had to move into it. And what was remarkable, were a hundred percent of the people on, no. But what was remarkable, was I just had this little, little thought. I kind of thought it about the guy. It's just the faintest thing. I didn't see a picture. I don't even know how to describe it. The faintest thing. And so I just told the guy, and the guy said. That's exactly right, exactly right. So one of these guys says to me, I just see you like a boat with your keel in, in the water, but it's almost touching the bottom. But a tide's coming, and it's raising the boat. And he said "He said to me, I honestly don't know what that means. I knew exactly what it meant. Uh, since I'd been in Australia, we just kept seeing opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And one of the things that, that I've, it's a kind of a foundational principle of my life, is that This concept of a rising tide lifts all boats. If you get to where the tide is rising, it can make you look like a great investor. It can make you look like a great minister. Uh, The the point is to get where the tide is rising. I've said it. I've used it a lot. I think God was saying to me, the tide is rising here.
0: That, by the way, is a word that we've been talking about, a season. The tide is rising, right? And I was telling Dave, who's been in a period of inactivity for a number of years, the tide's rising get into ministry again full bore because the tide is rising it's gonna he's gonna use you again like this see he's got a long sabbath rested now here he goes so I wanna do something okay I, I just I'm not willing if, if you have to go right now we're technically we should be done right now and I'm sorry but I wanna take about 10 minutes ah, about eight minutes and I wanna do something and this is if you're if this is gonna freak you out I love you okay you can go if you want a- and you don't have to do anything But I want to do that. I want us to literally, I want you to form a group of three or four. I want you to just surround each other. I want you to just sort of, you know, pick one person or do whatever it might, I just start praying. What do you want to do here, Lord? And I just want you to, if you're praying in the spirit, I'm asking you to do so silently so as not to distract somebody who doesn't understand what that means and so on. By the way, if you don't know the Lord and you're hearing stuff, you can still be a part of this. I, I really believe that the Lord moves if you want him to and so on. It could be interesting. And if you, if you don't, it's okay. But would you just get into, like I say, three or four? And, and by the way, people that know what I'm talking about, and you're already with three or four people that really get this, would you spread yourself out and go find somebody who might not be as comfortable doing this so they have somebody who has a little bit of experience with this to, right, to help out? You see what I'm saying? But what I want you to do is I want you to get in just three or four, and I want you to just take a couple of minutes, and I want you to pray in the Spirit, and just do what I said earlier. When something comes to mind, look for something that's small. Look, it doesn't have to be small, by the way, but look for something that's just sort of a word or an image or uh, just a thought, right? And then just kind of say, you know, stay in a prayerful attitude. You can keep your eyes closed or not. I don't care. But I want you to just sort of offer up what you think the Lord might be saying and offer it up and then just take a moment and then just kind of sit with it. And, And if somebody else has something, if you have something to add on to it, add on to it and just kind of do that. And then when you get to a bit of a revelation, pray about it. And then if you have enough time, we'll do that again. But like I say, we're not going to take a long time on this. But I just want to show you something, because I think it's really important. You could hear this word, and you could leave this place, and never enter into it. And I don't want to do that. I want people to have a moment to have an opportunity to enter into this. I want to have a moment for you to see it in action, for you to experience it, so that you kind of go, oh, I know what that bike feels like to ride on. See what I'm saying? So would you do that for me, please? Would you just turn to three and four? And, and again, you know what I mean? do a quick little introduction, but just sort of just close your eyes, start praying, ask the Lord what he might do. Okay, just kind of gather up, okay? We'll be calling you all back here in a minute.